Thank you for listening to Pastor Sean's Bible Study Teaching Podcast from Emmanuel Baptist Church in Sterling, Colorado. This lesson was recorded during our Wednesday night adult seminars. For more information on Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit our website at www.ebc-online.org. Now here's Pastor Sean. All right, last week we kind of launched on this whole trajectory of looking at biblical worldview. And we, we said that in order to have a biblical worldview, we needed a combination of looking at the big story of the Bible, and we also need to look at systematic theology. And one of the questions that I asked you guys last week was if you wanted to understand kind of how the Bible came to be the Bible. And so basically what I'm going to be doing for, it may take most of the time tonight, this is actually a teaching that I do in a CCU class on biblical interpretation. But I think it's important for you guys to understand some of this stuff, okay? Because when you're out in the culture and people attack the Bible, which do people attack the Bible? Do people say you can't trust the Bible? The Bible was put together by a bunch of men and you can't really trust it. And how do you know that what we have today is accurate? It hasn't been mistranslated and it's gone through a bunch of different corruptions. How how do you know that? So what I'm going to do tonight is just try to lay forth a case historically and biblically of why we can trust the Bible. So last week I said one of the things that we wanted to talk about was the Bible's inspired. It's given by inspiration. So let's just start by turning to 2 Timothy 316, it's a foundational passage of scripture. This is one that um, I think our youth had to memorize last Wednesday night because when I went to lunch with my son, I said, what did you learn in youth group? And he said, all scriptures God breathed. And he quoted 2 Timothy 316. So I said, I'm very proud of you, Aiden, for doing that. And I said, it's a good verse to, to, to memorize. So 2 Timothy 316 says this, all scripture is breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. All Scripture is what? Breathed out by God. So what I'm going to talk about is how did that happen? It's called the inspiration of Scripture. We believe that God verbally inspired the writers to write, but there's a lot of different viewpoints of how that happened. Okay? And maybe you've never heard about these viewpoints before, but I want to show you the different theories that people have had over the years to talk about how the Bible writers wrote what they wrote. So how did Paul write Galatians? How did John write the Gospel of John? How did Matthew write Matthew? Okay? The first theory, and, and again, I use the word theory, is what's called the intuition theory. This theory states that the writers of the Scriptures were religious geniuses like Shakespeare, Einstein, They were literary masters. They had natural religious intuition also found in other great thinkers such as Confucius or Plato. So Paul was just a religious genius, and that's why he wrote what he wrote, because he was so intelligent. Do you buy that? Good. For not for Peter. Peter. Okay. He's a fisherman. (laughs) Poor Peter. Peter. Okay. So that's just like, they had this sense of intuition. They just kind of knew spiritual things and it just kind of came to their mind because they were so astute and they wrote down just kind of these great deep thoughts. Okay, the second theory is illumination. The Holy Spirit was involved, but He only heightened the normal powers of the writers by giving them an increased sensitivity and perceptivity. Now this takes it one step further by saying it's not just their own internal ability to understand things, 
Uh, that's second. That's the second. There's two handouts tonight. The one that hasn't been handed out is this one. So, so there should be one back there that's for part one. So we may not get to part two tonight. So, okay. So what this is saying is that the Holy Spirit was active, but all he did was just help them kind of think deeper thoughts. There was nothing beyond just the Holy Spirit helping or heightening their, their spiritual sensitivity. We don't buy that one either. Okay? This one's a little closer. This one's called the dynamic. A lot, of, a lot of fine Christians believe this. I don't, but this is what a lot of Christians may believe. The Spirit of God worked by directing the writer to the thoughts and concepts, allowing the writer's own distinctive personality to come into play in the choice of words or expressions. What they're saying is God did work on the minds and the hearts of the writers to write, but he did not tell them exactly what to write kind of gave them freedom with the thoughts and the concepts. So it would be like Paul, the Holy Spirit said, Paul, I want you to write salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But you can kind of put it in your own words and however you want to do it. I'm going to give you the concept. Okay? The other theory that's out there is called the dictation theory. This is like a stenographer in a court or like a little parrot on your shoulder. This is, God actually dictated the Bible to the writers like a little bird on the shoulder or a courtroom stenographer telling the writers exactly what to write. This bypasses human personality and is very mechanical. This is the whole idea that, write it down. In your ear, write it down. So it was like, you know, it was like a dictation. You were dictating as God was speaking in your ear, okay? Let me tell you the, the, the theory, or the, actually not the theory, but the one that most conservative evangelical Christians hold to, the one that I hold to, it's called the verbal plenary, I believe is the biblical one. So what is the verbal plenary idea of how the Bible came about? The Holy Spirit's influence extends beyond the direction of thoughts to the actual selection of the words and the grammar used to convey the message. God so mysteriously superintended the process that every word written was also the exact word he wanted to be written free from all error. So what we're saying is down to the grammar. So like on Sunday mornings when I say this is in the aorist tense, and you guys are like, oh, there he goes again, talking about the aorist tense. God told the writers exactly the exact words, the exact prepositions, the exact order. Everything was written exactly the way God wanted it to be written. So it was free from error, but the people still had their own personal writing styles. Paul's style is different than Peter's style. John's style is different than Luke. Do you want to know who's the most, probably the the best Greek writer in the Bible, education-wise, style-wise, and just superior Greek? Does anybody know who that is in the Bible? It's Luke. He was a doctor. Okay. Who has the most kind of free-flowing, not not very good grammar style? Peter. He was a fisherman, an educated fisherman. And so they wrote in their own style, with their own background and their own culture, but God worked on them in their hearts and minds to to write down exactly what he wanted, okay? Now, this brings us to the second question. Anybody ever heard of the word inerrancy? Here's the question that we've got to ask because this is a huge, huge debate. Does the Bible contain any errors? Because you'll hear people out there say what? There are errors and contradictions in the bible so let's just ask the question inerrancy let me define it this means that the bible is completely truthful 
in all that the Bible asserts, whether geographic, chronological, or theological details. So when the Bible says something took place in some place, is that literally where the place took place? Yes. When it gives dates and chronologies, are those accurate? Okay. Now, there are some things that the Bible doesn't assert. Does the Bible give you instructions on how to change a flat tire? Does the Bible give you instructions on how to make chicken soup? Does the Bible give you instructions on quantum physics? No. There's some things the Bible doesn't assert. So the Bible's not going to address those issues. The Bible's true in everything that it asserts, whether geographic, chronological, or theological. Okay? That's, the, that's what we mean by inerrancy. Now, there's another term out there called infallibility. The Bible's infallible. Now, this is a lesser view. Don't be confused by the terminology here. Infallibly basically is a lesser view of inerrancy. It sees that the Bible is infallible and error-free only in matters of theology or faith. So, for example, a person might hold that the Bible's true, but when it comes to Jonah being swallowed by a fish, that's neither theological or related to faith, so that's just a myth. Or when, the, when, when Moses parted the Red Sea, that has nothing to do with theology or faith, so that may or may not have happened. But when, God, when the Bible talks about Jesus and it talks about faith and it talks about salvation, those things we have to believe to be true. Now, do you see how that's kind of a slippery slope? Because the people that believe in infallibility will say, Yes, I believe the Bible's true, but only in matters of theology and faith. So, for example, what the Bible says about issues of ethics or gender issues or sexual issues, those aren't related to faith or theology, are they? So they can say the Bible may or may not be true in those areas. Okay? You see how the difference, the subtle difference there between that? Inspiration, as we saw above, there are many different people who hold a different, different views. Um, basically... Um, we kind of already talked about this. This is kind of coming back into, into um, vogue. It's called neo-orthodoxy. It was popularized by Karl Barth in the 1920s and the 1960s. Basically, what neo-orthodoxy says is that the writings, the writings in and of themselves are not inspired. What is really inspired I don't know if she put the rest of it on there. Let me give you the rest of that. Okay. The writings in and of themselves are not inherently inspired or inerrant. These writings actually become the word of God when they are preached. So what they're saying is, it only, this only, what does 2 Timothy 3.16 say that we just looked at? All what? Scripture. Now, let me ask you a question. Is there a difference between Scripture and the Word of God? When the Bible, when, when 2 Timothy 3.16 uses the word Scripture, it's the Greek word graphe, which relates to what is actually written. So what we actually have written on the page is inspired of God. What neo-orthodoxy says is 
It only becomes the Word of God when a preacher stands up and starts to talk about it, and then we experience God's Word as a community. This text, the text in and of itself does not have authority until we come together and give it authority when we start talking about it. Do you see how that's kind of dangerous? So who creates the meaning of the text? The group or the preacher. The text in and of itself does not have an inherent authority. So you can pick and choose which part of the text you want to believe if the text is not inspired. And what Paul is saying in 2 Timothy 3.16 is that all the Scripture, not just when the Word is preached or the Word is discussed, but actually the actual written. How many times did Jesus say, it is written? Why do you think he said that? He could have said, God said. And sometimes he does say, God said. But he says often, it is written to emphasize that the written Scripture is the authoritative Word of God because it's the final thing we have. Now, some people will use the word trustworthy. The Bible's trustworthy which I think is a good, it's a good way to say because some people will say, we don't want to use the word inerrancy because inerrancy is not in the Bible. Let's use biblical words like trustworthy. And I would say amen to that. But here's the problem. The modern debate over inerrancy has forced us to use precise vocabulary when discussing the nature of Scripture because of these nuanced meanings. Does that make sense? Okay. Um. We talked about this. One of the things you may want to go pull down off the website, any, like you go on a Google search, is the Chicago Statement of Biblical Inerrancy. It was drafted in the late 70s. It's probably the most current document that defines what evangelical Christians believe about the Bible, and it's cross-denomination. Um, when I teach at um, CCU, I have to sign that I agree with the biblical inerrancy. All the professors at our Southern Baptist seminaries have to agree with the biblical inerrancy statement. It's just a kind of a unified statement. Okay, so let's just talk about some other issues because we need to qualify inerrancy. Let me ask you guys a question. Do we have any existing documents from the original writings of the New Testament? Do we have an original Romans? No, we don't have any. Any original. We do not have the original Romans. We don't have the original Mark. We don't have any of the originals. So we do not have the, all we have today are what? Either copies or translations. Not even a museum. Originals. Like, like the, those aren't originals. We don't, we don't have, but let, me, let me go a little further because I'm going to make a case why. Don't be scared off by that. Okay, don't be scared off by that. Now here's what inerrancy applies to. It only applies to the original autographs. And the word autograph is just another word. When, they, when we use the term autograph, it means the original copy. Inerrancy applies to the original, to the original, not the copies. Okay? Don't be scared off by that. Okay? Inerrancy respects the authorial intent of the passage and the literary conventions under which the author wrote. So inerrancy does mean that we are, like for example, when you read the book of Revelation, does it read differently than the book of Psalms? based upon different genre and based upon different thousands of years. Okay, inerrancy says that there's different genres and we respect those. It doesn't mean that the Bible has errors. It just means that we read the Bible differently based upon the genre. You read Revelation different than you read Romans. You read Psalms different than you read Second Timothy. You read the Proverbs differently than you read Joshua. So you just need to know how to read those things. So inerrancy takes into... It says the originals are... Inerrant, without error, but inerrancy doesn't just mean that 
it was like a dictation where the author wrote down there, there was no personality or genre, okay? Where are the originals? They're probably either burned or lost or in a cave somewhere that haven't been discovered yet. But I'll, I'll go on and explain this. Now, here, inerrancy doesn't mean that the Bible provides definitive and exhaustive information on every topic. Like I said before, does the Bible tell us how to change a flat tire? The second Hezekiah say, here's how you change a flat tire. Number one, there's no second Hezekiah. <laughs> Some of you are like, where's, where's second Hezekiah? I don't know. But Proverbs chapter 30, verse 5 says, every word of God proves true. He is a shield for those who take refuge in him. Um, now, let's talk about the transmission of ancient manuscripts. I don't know how these got in here. Are these on your paper? We're going to skip those because we looked at those last week. Let's talk about transmission of ancient manuscripts because here's the question that you guys may come across on the History Channel or just people out there, blogs, Google, whatever. Were the ancient manuscripts of the Bible transmitted accurately? Okay, so the question we've got to ask is we don't have an original. Both, Old Testament and New Testament. So, so, Dead Sea Scrolls, but those aren't originals. Those are copies. So, so here, here's what you have today. Whether you have an ESV or an NIV or the New American Standard King James, do you have an original Greek manuscript in front of you? You have an English translation. Some of you couldn't read Greek if you had it. Okay. So here's the question. How do you know that what you are holding in your hand has been transmitted accurately back when Mark was written in the 60s, 80s, 60s? Have you ever thought about that? How do, I, how do I know that what we have here in our Bible is the same thing that was written in the early church? That's the question. Do what we have today, has there been a gap? Has God preserved that process? And so let's talk about this process. The original documents are called autographs. I don't know why they call them autographs. It's just the, the technical way, technical word form. We've already kind of talked about this. All autographs of the biblical books have either been lost or destroyed, so we do not have any original copies today. But there is a process of comparing and studying these copies to get as close to the wording of the original that we can get, and it's called textual criticism. I'm getting a little bit detailed here, but you guys wanted me to go on this path. So, copies are the ones that are in the three languages, right? Yeah, and even in English. There's copies even today. I mean, this is we have a copy. Well, the earliest, I would use the word earliest copy. Yeah, earliest copy. Okay, so let's talk about the Old Testament first. The earliest manuscripts we had of the Old Testament were from the Leningrad Codex around 1008 A.D. and the Aleppo Codex 900 A.D. So 900 A.D., not B.C., 900 A.D. is the earliest manuscript that we can date of the Old Testament. Originally. Okay? So let's just talk about math here. When was the Old Testament completed? A long time. Well, even about a thousand, a couple thousand years before that. Okay, so let's just let's just say AD zero. Okay, 
the last, Revelation's the last book of the New Testament. It was written in 95 AD, give or take, 95 to 99. We'll say, we'll go an early date with 95 AD. So we're not even talking about the New Testament yet. What we have today, let's just talk about our Bibles today, NIV, ESV, New American Standard, King James, whatever, New King James, whatever version you use, here's your modern translation. Here's the earliest date that we could find. So 900 AD, if we go back from where we are today at 2013, how many years do we go back? Somebody do the math for me there. A lot. You guys are really good at math, okay? Okay, so from 900 A.D. to the present, we've been working on a Hebrew Old Testament based upon these copies that we found in 900 A.D. Okay, something happened in 1947, which is very, very important. These were used from 900 A.D. to about 1,000, so 900 to 1,000 A.D. All the Bible translations from that point forward up to 1947 used those copies. Something happened in 1947. A little boy was out playing in a cave, throwing a rock. He threw a rock and it hit a pot, shattered the pot, and that was the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And this was a huge, huge find with the Dead Sea Scrolls because what happened was, let me just put this up here so you can see it. In 1947, a young shocker boy threw a rock in a cave near the Dead Sea and shattered a pot and found copies of the Old Testament, which dated back to what? A.D. 50 to 250 B.C. So which is older manuscript, the early codexes or the Dead Sea Scrolls? The Dead Sea Scrolls. Okay, so if you are a textual critic and you're wanting to compare manuscripts, what are you going to do? This looks like a scroll, right? It's a roll of toilet paper. You take, here's Dead Sea Scroll, 1947. Okay? It goes back to 250 B.C. Let's take the scroll or the copy we found from 900 A.D. Let's lay them side by side. Let's take Isaiah and Isaiah. What are you going to look for? You're going to look to see if there's been any changes from this date to this date all the way to that date. And what are you going to find? None. There's none. Well, because they go back by carbon. They had to date it. I mean, it could be the original. I mean, it could, it could be. But, but what, what scholars have said is the furthest back we can go is 250 B.C., which is further back than 900 A.D., which, which all the modern trans... Like, King James Version up to 1947 was based upon the 900 A.D. codexes. So here's what happened. They found portions of all the Old Testament books except for Esther and Nehemiah. And so what they did was they compared the oldest manuscripts to the newest manuscripts side by side. Scholars looked at all of them, and what did they find? No discrepancies. Well, as far as Dead Sea Scrolls, I have no idea. Now, here's what we found. The copying process, because who copied this? Scribes copied from 250 B.C. to about 1,000 A.D. For over 1,000 years, the process of copying those manuscripts was meticulous and accurate. 
under God's sovereign authority. Now, this is what you're not going to hear on the History Channel. I mean, this is science. I mean, this is comparing actual data to data that you have physical things in front of you to compare and say that anybody that argues and say, man, the transmission's been lost over the years, just say Dead Sea Scrolls and explain to them what I just did. Maybe better than what I did. Now let's talk about the New Testament. There are no original manuscripts of the New Testament, but here's the beauty. We do have 5,752 ancient manuscripts of the New Testament. We have over 5,000 ancient manuscripts, meaning early documents. Not the originals, but early documents. Over 5,000. That's a lot. It's a lot. The oldest fragment that has been found from the New Testament is A.D. 130. It's called the John Rylands Fragment, and it's of John 18, 31 through 38. Okay? So the last apostle to die is John, somewhere between 95 to 99 A.D. So we're talking almost 30 to 40 years after the last apostle, we have the earliest dated fragment of a manuscript that we can find. So the earliest New Testament document that we can date is around A.D. 130, okay? Which is still pretty early in comparison to when the last of those were written, okay? Now, let's talk about famous textual variants because you will come across these in your Bible and you need to understand and not be afraid of them. So let's turn to Mark, the very last chapter of Mark, And I want to just show you how your Bible deals with this. And then I want to stop and talk about a theological issue. Turn to Mark chapter 16 and look between verses 8 and 9 if your Bible says anything. And hopefully your Bible has some type of footnote, some type of bracket, some type of wording explaining something there. What what does your Bible say there between Mark 16, 8 and 9? Okay, does it say something like some of the earliest manuscripts do not contain that, that ending? Okay, so that's a textual variant. So what does that mean? They found documents of Mark that are older that did not include that ending. Your modern translations will include that ending as inspired, but they'll give you a, a thing there saying there are older manuscripts that do not contain this. So let me just ask you a question. When you study manuscripts of documents, should you go with the oldest? Why? It's the closest to the original. So how do we take the ending of Mark? Do we say it shouldn't be in the Bible? Do we say we don't believe it? Here's the way I take it. What you find in Mark is not contradictory to what you find in the rest of the Bible except for one theological issue. And you don't want to build an entire theology on a ending that may not be the original ending. So let's look at Mark. Let's look at the ending there. You've got Mary Magdalene appearing. She went out and told those. Do we find that in the other Gospels? Yes, we can, we can affirm that. Um, they were walking in the country. The two disciples on the road to Emmaus. Was that in Luke's Gospel? Yes. You have the Great Commission where in verse 15 it says... They go into all the world and proclaim the gospel of the whole creation. Do we have that? Okay. Talks about being baptized. Do we have people getting baptized? Yeah. Okay. Verse 17, 
And these, will, and these signs will accompany those who believe. In my name, they will cast out demons. Do we have casting out demons? They will speak in new tongues. Whether, however you view that, is there tongues in other parts of the Bible? Yes. They will pick up serpents with their hands. Do we find that anywhere else? Not really. The only other, the only other example is that when Paul was bitten by a serpent, but he didn't pick it up with his hand. It, it, was, it bit him and he lived. Will they drink deadly poison? No. You ever see anything of that? Will they lay their hands on the sick? Do we see that? Yeah. Okay, so there's two things, drinking deadly poison and snake handling. Do you know of denominations that do snake handling? Okay, yes. There are those deep south like in Tennessee and Virginia and places like that, West Virginia, that do snake handling. And what they've done is they've built a theology out of one verse with no other verse to support it. And they've built an entire theology out of an ending of Mark that may not be the original. So here's what I'd say with the ending of Mark. We accept it, but we accept it with caution, say we're not going to build a theology out of something that only shows up there and doesn't show up anywhere else. And the things that are corroborated by the other Gospels, we will accept, but we have to realize that there's some older manuscripts that don't have that ending. Does that make sense? Okay. I had to write a thesis? Yeah, you had to write some paper for a seminary professor on exactly the mark. Um, I may have. I've written so many papers yeah, for seminary. You said that there are great theologians that believe. Yeah. Probably the best, the best one I've heard, John MacArthur, when he preached through um, Mark, he, he preached a whole, he ended in Mark, and he, ended, he did his ending. If you go back on the Grace to You website, John MacArthur deals awesomely with Mark's ending. It's probably the best one I've heard. I mean, go back and listen to that. Okay, let's talk about canonization. Okay, so we're going to shoot off canons. That's not what we're talking about here. There's some modern voices, before we move on to that, there's some modern voices that say that, um, like Bart Ehrman, have you ever heard of him misquoting Jesus, or Dan Brown, the Da Vinci Code? These are guys that say you can't trust the manuscripts. Now, with textual variants, let me just say this. When you compare all of those little footnotes in there, 98.9% 98.9% is accurate in what we have, and they don't affect issues of major doctrine. Okay? Now, let's talk about canonization, because this is another question people ask. Who determines what books should be included in the Bible and what order? Why isn't the Gospel of Judas in the Bible? Why isn't the Shepherd of Hermas in the Bible? Why isn't the Gospel of Thomas in the Bible? Or Mary Magdalene. Being married to Jesus and having a daughter that becomes the French heir and the Knights Templar and the whole Da Vinci Code. How do we know which books go in which order? It's called canon. Canon is a word that just means the closed list of books that Christians view as uniquely inspired. So when you hear the term, it's a closed canon, meaning from Genesis to Revelation, it is a closed document. You can't add anything to it or subtract anything from it. Okay, But the question is, how do we get what we get in there? The early church father Athanasius was the first person to use the Greek word canon to refer to Christianity's list of inspired books. Now, I need to make a very clear distinction here. Because this is what a lot of people will say. People will say, at the Council of Nicaea, under Constantine... 
all these people came together and they gave authority to the Bible. How do you deal with that? No. Do people, does a human council give authority to the Bible? Okay, so the canon is not an authorized collections of writings that a church conferred upon the scriptures to somehow authenticate or endorse or authorize them as scriptures. It's not like they came together at the Council of Nicene and said, okay, we're putting our stamp of approval on the Bible and we're saying it's the Bible. That's not what happened. A lot of times you will hear people say that's what happened. That's not what happened. Here's what happened. The canon is a collection of already inspired writings with their own inherent authority. And so what the canonization process was, was they were coming together to collectively say, this is what we already believe is true, inspired, authoritative, and we're just agreeing upon it as a church council from all parts of the known world at that time. Not in some corner over here, but everybody, Christians from the known world came together in a huge council, and they did not confer authority on the Bible. They recognized that authority was already there, and they submitted to it and said, this is what we, we submit to as, as the list. Okay? Now, here's the Old Testament. The 39 books of the Old Testament were written between 1400 and 430 B.C. So that's a long period of time. We do not have a detailed description from history about how this process was done. So we don't have a detailed history of why Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy are first and why Joshua and Judges and and why the Bible is in the order that's in. The Hebrew Bible is in a different order than the English Bible. So if you were to read a Hebrew Bible, it's, it's a different order. Not that ours is necessarily wrong. It's just as evangelical, as Protestants, as non-Jewish people, we, we have a different order. Same books, just a different order. Okay, but here's what we have to believe. By the time of Jesus, most Jews were in agreement as to the canon of the Old Testament. And that canon is what the same that we have today. So we don't have a detailed description of the process, but by Jesus' time, Jesus even and his disciples and those in his time period agreed that the, the list of the scriptures that, 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 that comprised the Old Testament was the Old Testament, and it's the same list that we have today. So my, my point is if it's good enough for Jesus, it's probably good enough for us. Okay, so Jesus affirmed the canon of scripture, and we won't have time to go back and look at some of these verses. Um, by the... Okay, yeah. Since Jesus and his apostles affirmed the Old Testament canon as closed and authoritative as his followers, we have no choice but to do the same. Okay? But there's an extra biblical source. Josephus, who was a Jewish historian during Jesus' day, he was a non-Christian. He was Jewish. He was a very well-respected historian, claimed that the Jewish canon which matches our Old Testament had been settled from the time of the Persian king Artaxerxes, 465 to 423 B.C. So he historically, he historically dated at that time. And so we take maybe a, non, a non-biblical, extra-biblical, historical dating of that, and that's when he believes that the Bible we have in the Old Testament came together in that form at that time, and Jesus viewed it as the authoritative Bible, and it's the same list that we have today in the Old Testament. Does that make sense? I know this is really technical tonight, but you guys asked me to to do this last week. Now, New Testament. 
what issues must be considered to determine which books are included in the New Testament. Let me give you a little bit of church history here. Marcion was the first person to come up with a canon or a list of books of Scripture in A.D. 140. He was considered a heretic because he pretty much left most of the Old Testament out and denied the miracles of Christ. Marcion, there are Marcionites today. If you ever hear anybody say, the God of the Old Bible would never judge anybody. The God of the Old Testament, that's not the God that we have today. That was an evil, cruel, mean, vengeful God, but the God of the New Testament's a God of love. You ever hear people say that? That's Marcion. He, he basically said, uh, let's just throw out the whole Old Testament. Uh, I don't buy the miracles of Jesus, so I'm just going to come up with a list of things that deny all that stuff. And he's the first one. He's the first one that came up with the list of which books should be included in the Bible. Thomas Jefferson did the same thing many years later. Yeah, actually took like a knife and cut out which parts. Now, the next major step was the Muratorian fragment. I don't want to get too much in detail there. But here's the one that you need to understand. In AD, 30, uh, in AD 367, and you really need to understand, Athanasius was probably one of the most important church fathers in the first three or 400 years of Christianity. Athanasius was the first person to offer the canon that we recognize today. The Council of Carthage in 397 agreed with this, and this is when the completed New Testament was recognized by the Orthodox Church. Okay. Athanasius also was the first one to really define the Trinity. So you can thank Athanasius for helping us understand the Trinity and helping us get the order of the Bible the way it should be in church history. He was a little short, dark-complected guy. He was called the Black Dwarf. That's what they nicknamed him. Not very politically correct today, but that's what they called him. Okay? (laughs) Scriptural evidence. The books of the New Testament were written by apostles or those who were intimately connected with the apostles. Okay? And apostles were eyewitnesses of Christ's resurrection or they had been personally empowered by him and his Holy Spirit to lead the early church. That would be, that would be Paul. And the apostles were whoops, official positions in the church appointed by Christ, and he had the authority of the Old Testament prophets behind him. So let's ask a question. If I were to break you guys up into groups and ask you this, which is often what I do in some of my classes, and p- kids freak out, like, what in the world is he asking me to do? How would you, if you were... How would you determine the rules for which books make it and which books don't? Because there's a lot of books out there. How do you know which books go in the Bible and which books don't? How do we know that Matthew's in, but the Gospel of Thomas is out? Or the Gospel of Judas is out, but Hebrews is in? Okay? How do you know which book's in and which book's out? Well, here's the first criteria. I'm going to give you the criteria. This is the textual criticism criteria. If, you wanna, if, if, if somebody asks you why we have the books in the Bible that we have, you can explain to them this process and say, here's how you determine what makes it in the Bible. Here's the first rule. Apostolic authority, which I think is probably one of the most important. Did an apostle write it? Or someone that was close to an apostle. Like Luke did, was not an apostle, but he was an eyewitness. Or he got eyewitnesses. Mark was not an eyewitness, but he got his information from Peter. Were they an eyewitness? Or did they get their stuff written directly from an eyewitness? Was Matthew an eyewitness? Yes. Was John an eyewitness? Was Peter an eyewitness? 
Was James an eyewitness? Was Jude an eyewitness? Was Paul an eyewitness? Yes. Am I missing any other Old Te- New Testament books? Luke. Was Luke an eyewitness? He got his information from eyewitnesses. Was Mark an eyewitness? No, he got his information from Peter. The only one that's really, really kind of tricky is Hebrews. We really don't know who write, wrote Hebrews. Um, there's a lot of debate out there. So that was, that's one of the ones that's, that was the hardest one to determine whether it should be in the Bible or not because we don't know who wrote it. So the first test is, did an apostle write it, an eyewitness? Second one, how far back can it be traced? Okay. The, the, hmm, probably Galatians, J- James or Galatians or First and Second Thessalonians, there's some debate. But let's say that the first... The first books of the New Testament, let's just, let's take a a date of the 50s, okay? The 50s, swinging 50s, okay? John the Apostle was the last apostle to live. He died on the island of Patmos, let's just say 95 AD, and that was when Revelation was written. So, how far back can it be traced? So let me ask you a question. If anything is written after 95, or let's say, if anything's written after 95 AD, what do we have to conclude? It's, it's, there's no eyewitnesses, and it doesn't go back as far. Okay? It's out. You're too far out in history. Some of these Gnostic Gospels, like the Gospel of Thomas, the Gospel of Judas, they were written in the 200s. And you're getting how far back? You're getting almost... A hundred years. So why is it called the Gospel of Thomas? Because that's what they, the that's what the, the Tom, either Thomas wrote it or a disciple of Thomas wrote it, um, from Thomas's perspective. There's these different, and this is what like the whole Da Vinci Code stuff is is named after. Okay. Well. Right, but, but they dated at this date, and the way you can date at this date, because it wasn't quite, and we'll get to the next, you have to build all these as a case together. Here's the third one, orthodoxy. Is there cause, in any, is there anything in these books that seems concerning? Like in some of these Gnostic Gospels, you have Jesus marrying Mary Magdalene. Does that cause you some problems? Well, when he was a child, he took little clay pigeons and made them all Yeah, okay, like origami, you know, and stuff like that. Yeah, and stuff, yeah, weird stuff that you don't, yeah. You know, so is there any weird theology that doesn't match what you find in the Old Testament or what you find in other books in the New Testament, okay? Now, here's another one. Universality. Was there a broad segment of the church that accepted it? In other words, if I had a map of the known world up here, and we have, let's say, Jerusalem, and we have Alexandria down in Egypt, and we go all the way over to Syria, Antioch, and Rome, and all the way up to maybe even France... Is, are these books being referenced and used all over the known world, not just in a little pocket over here? Does that make sense? Is there a universal scope of them being used? And how do you know if they're used? How would you know that? Yeah, here's the, the, the fifth one. The way you know that whoops, is the traditional use. Has it been used by many church fathers and, and churches for a long time already? In other words, Pastor A is preaching out of it over here, and Pastor B is preaching out of it over here, 
And Pastor C is preaching on it. So not only is it spread all over the place, but you can look at sermons and see if those scriptures are quoted in these sermons all over the known world. Okay? And then the last one is, it, does it have evidence of inspiration? Is it God-breathed? Okay. What? That's why you take what? Oh, okay, yeah. Now, I'm going to kind of skip over some of this stuff because I don't want to get too much into this, but I can just you can go back and read this. But, but I want to say this. What was happening? The question you may ask is, okay, from eight, if the council in 397 A.D., that's, when we, that's, that's the final list of the canon that we have today, and the last book was written in 95 A.D.-ish, why did it take 300 years for them to get around to doing that? Is that a big question you ask? There's something huge going on in the world the first 300 years that they don't have time to do that. Anybody know what's going on? Persecution. They're getting lit up. Okay. They were getting lit up. That's a good way of putting it. They were getting killed. They did not have the time to have these councils to come together and talk about this. Because Christians were being stoned, they were being murdered, they were being uh, you know, persecuted, they were dying for their faith. They were barely surviving just being Christians. But then, I'll get to my notes here in just for a few moments. When something happened in 315 A.D., oh, here we go. Historically, what was going on in the first 200 years, 300 years of the church? Geographic expansion of Christians and Roman persecution. The Christians were on the move. And they were being persecuted. They did not have the time or really the freedom to gather together and have these discussions. It wasn't until 315, the Edict of Milan, that Constantine converted to Christianity and it changed the way that people lived and now they were free to have these councils. Christianity was legal. So you could call, you could call people from all over the known world together to meet in Rome or to meet in Alexandria or to meet in Nicaea, to meet in these different places, to come together. And so Pastor B over here comes and they all come together like, wow, we all believe the same thing. We're reading the same thing. We're using the same scripture. We all believe the same authority. Before, they didn't have time to gather to do that because they had to go underground and were being torched, were being lit up, as you said. So the reason it took so long, you may ask, is because of persecution. And in God's sovereignty and in God's timing, that's the way he had it to be done. Now, that may not be a good answer to some people that are, that are like wanting to get on you for being, you know, well, you, how can you believe all that? The bottom line is your, your best answer may be, you know what? I believe it by faith, and it's God's sovereign way of doing it, and I trust that he knows what he's doing. And he's preserved the process. Some people may not buy that and say, well, that's just a cop-out. Well, let it be a cop-out. You know, we'll, that, that's, that, that's probably the best answer. Okay, now I'm going to talk about the Apocrypha because some of you are from Roman Catholic backgrounds, and you're like, we've, we've got this whole other list of books called the Apocrypha. Anybody ever heard of the Apocrypha? Okay. Was that the five books? The yeah, 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 more than five, but that, yeah, it's the, it's the Apocrypha. Yeah, Roman Catholics and Eastern Orthodox churches recognize the Apocrypha as Holy Scripture while Protestants do not. Why? If you go to a Catholic church or get a Catholic Bible, there will be in between the Old Testament and New Testament what's called the Apocrypha. Okay? Why, why do we not accept the Apocrypha as Protestants? Well, here's why. First of all, the Apocrypha includes books written by Jews 
and the 500-year period between the Old and New Testaments. So it's really, it wasn't written during any of the Old Testament period. It's an intertestamental period. Okay, number two. The Jews who authorized the books never accepted them into their canon. The Jews didn't even accept them into their canon. Okay? They looked at them as historical books that were important, but they did not look at them as Scripture, which is important. It also contains clear factual errors as well as theological errors such as purgatory and praying for the dead. There are some chronological errors that can be looked at chronologically as they're not inerrant. They have factual errors in them that you can go back in history and say these are, these are clearly factual errors. The Roman Catholic Church did not officially recognize them until the Council of Trent in 1546. So the Apocrypha really wasn't in the Catholic Bible until 1546. Jerome, in 340 to 420, he's the translator of the Latin Vulgate. It was used by the Roman Catholic Church for a thousand years before the Council of Trent. He did not consider it to be inspired scripture. Okay, another reason, nowhere do we find any New Testament authors quoting the Apocrypha as Scripture, while almost every Old Testament book is quoted in the New Testament as Scripture. That's probably your best argument right there. Okay, so here's the question. Is the canon closed? Based upon rules for canonicity, it would be impossible to add any other books to the Bible. And as Larry, you reminded us the other morning, was it yesterday morning, the end of Revelation? Where, let's just turn to the end of Revelation in our, in our men's study. Um, I know this specifically applies to Revelation, the book, but I think its principle applies to the entire Bible. So Revelation um, 22, 18. Revelation 22, 18. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. If anyone takes away from the words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city which are described in this book. So we cannot add or subtract to the Bible. Now, let's ask another question. I want to talk about translation issues because you guys are like, you know what? This is not where I live, the Council of Nicaea and Athanasius and textual criticism. I, I'm not going to sit on the street and debate somebody about this, but all I have is an English Bible, and I want to know if it's accurate. Okay, so let me, give you the, let me get you how we got our English Bible. You guys want to do a little history on how you get your English Bible? So here we go. History of the English Bible. While not written in English... The Latin Vulgate, and the word Vulgate is actually the word comes from vulgar. Vulgar in Latin doesn't mean the way we think. Vulgar just means common. It was, it was the Latin Vulgate. It was translated by Jerome around 400 A.D., and it was used almost 1,000 years in the English-speaking world until John Wycliffe. Okay, so instead of being in Greek and Hebrew, the original languages, the first actual translation outside of Greek and Hebrew is the Latin Vulgate, which is written in Latin. And that was used for a thousand years by the church. So we're talking about during the Middle Ages. From, from 400-ish A.D. all the way to like the 1400s, a thousand years. The Latin. So the only, the only translation, if you knew Latin, Greek, and Hebrew, you could read the Bible. If you did not know those languages, what did you have to do? Somebody had to 
teach it to you. And you had to trust that what they were teaching you was accurate. Now, what did we see during that period of time? The Dark Ages, the, the popes, the whole idea where they had the Bible chained out on the middle of the, of the, the village and that it was written in Latin and nobody, they, they did not want the common people to know the Bible. They wanted to keep it within the, the power structure of the, of the church. And then John Wycliffe comes along. So in 1382, John Wycliffe, you've heard of the Wycliffe Bible translators? It's named after John Wycliffe. John Wycliffe translated the entire Bible into English from the Latin Vulgate. This was copied by hand as there was no printing press yet invented. Now, here's the thing about the Wycliffe Bible. It wasn't translated from the original Greek and Hebrew. It was translated from the Latin. So it's, it's a missing one. It's not going back to the originals. It's going back to the Latin of the originals. Okay? Now, here's what happened. This was, this was heretical in the Roman Catholic Church, in the Church of England, to have an English Bible, but not in Latin. In 1414, reading the English Bible became punishable by death. Can you believe that? It's punishable by death to read the Bible in English. And as a symbolic way to dishonor Wycliffe, the Roman Catholic Church exhumed his body and burned it at the stake for heresy after he'd already died. They dug his bones up and burned it in effigy to tell the world that this man's a heretic. We didn't have a chance to burn him at the stake while he's alive, but we're going to do it after, after he's dead. No, no, this was before, the, this was really before the Roman Catholic Church. We're still in the early stages in the three and four hundreds. Um, his was the, La, his was Latin. So he didn't, at that time, there wasn't as much power structure in the Roman Catholic Church the way that it was in those early years. It was still, there was still a bishop of Rome, but it wasn't like the central Vatican and all that stuff had centralized in Rome yet. It was moving towards that. But it, the, the height of the papacy really hadn't hit until maybe around the eight or nine hundreds, like Pope Innocent and those things. I may have the dates off a little bit. Does that answer your question? Yeah. So, yeah, he, did, he didn't get in really much in trouble. Okay, in 1562, William Tyndale, you've heard of Tyndale? William Tyndale published the first printed English New Testament, and he translated it from the original Greek, just the New Testament. So this is an important translation because two things. It's printed... It's after the printing press, and it's from the original Greek. So it's the first real, probably accurate translation in English, and it's readily accessible because it's what? Printed. So it can get out to the masses in English. The first completed, that was just the New Testament. The first completed English Bible that was translated from the original languages, Greek and Hebrew, appeared in 1535. It was called the Coverdale Bible because it was published by Miles Coverdale, Tyndale's associate. Now, here's what happened next. Get one of those? <laughs> you know, it may, be on, it may be in some museum somewhere. I'm not sure. Now, here's, here's, here's what else happened, guys. These men, think about what they sacrificed to get us the Bible. And we take for granted what we have today. In 1536, Tyndale was captured by Henry VIII's men and was strangled and burned at the stake. And here's what he said while he was being burned at the stake. His dying words, Lord, open the eyes of the king of England. And look what happened. One year later, the king officially licensed the distribution of English Bibles. Two men burned at the stake, one after he died, just for translating the Bible into English. 
so that the common people can read and understand God's word. Now, in 1539, Coverdale's great Bible became the standard because of its large pages. This is important because this was the first English translation authorized to be read in the official Church of England. Okay, so the government of England is now saying we're authorizing this as the official Bible to be read. The great Bible. Now, something happened in England's history. If you go back and, like, if you read, talk about the Tudors, Henry VIII and his daughter, Mary. Mary I, Bloody Mary, Henry VIII's devoutly Catholic daughter. If you know the whole issue, Henry VIII struggled. He was, he was a devout Catholic, but he was also kind of an immoral man. But his daughter, Mary, was extremely devout Catholic. She was the daughter he had with Catherine of Aragon. When she came in power, she wanted to oust all of the Protestants in England. And so that's why you have Bloody Mary. Many Protestants fled England because they were afraid of being killed. And they fled to places like Geneva. William Whittingham, an English exile in Geneva, completed the popular Geneva Bible in 1560. This was actually superior to the Great Bible in accuracy of translation. The Geneva Bible, I've seen making a comeback. I think Kirk Cameron, didn't, isn't Kirk Cameron promoting it or something on or rc sproll or something yeah the geneva bible so okay now we're getting a little bit closer to what you guys are familiar with in 1604 king jimmy king james the first authorized a new translation of the entire bible and in 1611 we have the authorized version or the original king james version those that are king james only people they won't use the word king james bible will they what do they use they call it the authorized version because it was authorized by King James in 1611, who was a homosexual. Yeah, yeah, he was. Which is not, I mean, it's not a, not a huge issue, but it's just interesting that it's interesting that he would authorize the translation of a Bible, even you know, it was still culturally acceptable. Now, the King. This is what some King James only people don't want you to hear. The King James Version has undergone many revisions in 1629, 1638, 1729, 1762, and the 1769 or Oxford Standard Edition is the one that is actually used today. So the one that's used today is the 1769, not the 1611. So even the King James has gone through some different iterations over the years. He's from England, right? Who, King James? Oh, yeah. King Jimmy. Now, the King James Bible was the major Bible translation used in the English-speaking world until the Revised Standard Bible appeared in 1946. This is used by more liberal denominations, the Revised Standard. One of the things that was really neat when I, went to, when I go out to seminary at Southern Seminary and the second floor of the library, under glass, they have Spurgeon's Bible that he used to preach out of, his, his, his study Bible. And it's got notes off the side. And, of course, it's a King James Bible. But from about 1756 to 1946, where we're talking almost 200 years, the King James Bible was the standard Bible in the entire world. Okay. 1946, the Revised Standard. So in some of your mainline denominations, they probably use the Revised Standard version of the Bible. In 1971, the New American Standard Bible was published which is probably the most accurate to the original Greek and Hebrew of modern translations because it uses the older manuscripts. So that was a huge thing when the NASB came out. The only thing about the NASB, and I think I've talked about this before, it's, it kinda, it's worded kind of weird. I call it the Yoda Bible because 
like sometimes the Greek would be like, to the store, went, he did, you know, or something like that. And so the, the NASB almost translates it like how it sounds in Greek, and you're reading it, and you're like, this doesn't sound like English. It sounds like some... So it, it's very, very accurate, but it translates it almost exactly the way it's worded in the Greek as opposed to putting it into an English sentence. But, but the New American Standard, I don't know, Lori, at the, do you sell much New American Standard Bibles, or is it kind of, you still sell? They want the 1611? What, what, I would, what I would do, don't necessarily take my word for it, but look at, is it Thomas Nelson that still publishes the King James? Bible, what I would do is I would look at your Bibles, and at the, usually at the beginning of every Bible, like even your own, every Bible, usually in the very opening, it talks even briefly about, if there's a preface, it talks about the translation philosophy and how it was translated. So you may look at the opening of the King James and find out which well, manuscripts it's using. For, it, yeah, if it's the 1611, then it, it may be. I don't know exactly where it would be different, but there's those people that want the 16th because it's the authorized version. Is, and you, you know what I'm saying? Yes, Brent. You got me confused on this. Going, okay, we've got the early Spanish script, where the Leningrad Codex and all that oh, Codex of the Old Testament. But then on 19, you said the Latin Vulgate was translated by Jerome around 400. But you had said that the earliest manuscripts we have well, they're still no, they're still going off of like the Septuagint and other and other things. We're just talking about there's still copies going on. I mean, Jesus's day had. Can't you make the argument that back at 400 AD was accuracy because of what Jerome was doing? You could, you could, but I don't think that he. I'd have to do more research on that, Brent. I didn't mean to confuse okay. you. I'd have to go back and look at my dates. I'm not, I'm not an expert, so I'm just trying to give you guys an, an overview here. Um, the, the other issue, too, here is um, I don't want to go over this. I'll, I'll, you guys can look at this at another time. The big one in 1978, NIV, was published, which has become the most popular and most dominant translation in the last 30 years. I just read a blog yesterday saying that the NIV is kind of on its way out. I don't know if yeah. that the ESV and the Holman Christian Standard and other ones are kind of taking its place. I don't know if you're seeing that. Did they stop publishing it? Well, no one wants that. The new, the 2011. And they're not, yeah, nobody wants a 2011 NIV because they changed to gender, gender, whatever. Now, the newest and probably one of the most reliable translations is the um, ESV, which is what I used. It was first published in 2001. Okay, let's talk about types of translations. And this may be... I'll go pretty quick on this because I think you guys probably know this. We've probably done this before. The first type is a formal equivalent. This is the word-for-word -word translation. This type of translation is very concerned to preserve as much as possible the number of words and grammatical constructs from the original language. Okay, So this is your most accurate translations, word-for-word. -word. Examples of this would be the New American Standard, the King James, the New King James, the ESV, and the Holman Christian Standard Bible. Okay, So those would be your word-for-word -word most accurate translations okay next is what we call functional or, or dynamic equivalent this is the thought for thought this type of translation seeks to accurately convey the same meaning in new language but is not concerned about preserving the same number of words or equivalent grammatical constructions this focuses more on conveying the overall thought of the text not necessarily a word-for-word -word translation 
the biggest example of this is the NIV and the New Living Translation. Now, both of those, I would say, both of those are accurate translations because they're translated by committee. If you go and look at your ESV, you look at the New American Standard, look at the NIV, it's translation by committee. It's not just one person coming up with this. It's cross-denominational. They're coming together with the best scholars, and they're coming together to give you a broad, sweeped, um, I guess, um, expertise in these Bible translations. Okay? The, Yeah, if it's like a, well, probably not. I would maybe not put that. It would be loose. Like a children's Bible would be in between a paraphrase and a, and a thought for thought. Because sometimes like the kids, and they're like a new reader's NIV or something that's maybe a little bit less. Like for yeah. The next one's called a paraphrase. This is not a translation. It's usually done by one person. It's, it's trying to really give you a modernized way of saying it. And the examples of this would be the Living Bible and the Message. Those are t- paraphrases. They're not actual translations. And then the last are corrupt. These are used by non-Christian cults. They do not accurately put this, you know. The yeah, the Jehovah's Witness Watchtower. Like, for example, John 1.1 1, 1 in the Jehovah's Witness Bible says, In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God, lowercase. So they changed the Greek to, 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 to put forth their theology. Okay. All right. Is that the end of your handout? Okay. Let's just go into the Bible here. I got the next one here. Pass this out. I didn't, this is a little bit of a repeat for some people that are part of my Tuesday morning, but it's okay to have repeat because we always need repeat. Let's turn to Galatians. Let's turn, to, let's turn to Galatians chapter 1, and what I want to do is um, I want to just use this verse as a foundation. We've got about 23 minutes or so left. I want us to spend the last time together um, talking about how the gospel shapes our worldview. So let's read the opening to Paul's letter to Galatians, and I want you to listen to his tone. I want you to listen to what he says, and then I want us to think about our world in which we live today. Okay, so here's Galatians chapter 1, verse 1. Paul, an apostle, not from men, nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father who raised him from the dead and all the brothers who are with me to the churches of Galatia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, verses 4 and 5 are the gospel in a nutshell. So if you want to know what the gospel is, Paul's going to tell you in verses 4 and 5. Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself, what's that? The cross for our sins assumes we're what? Sinners in need of of saving to deliver us. Deliverance means we need deliverance from God's wrath under his condemnation. From this present evil age, according to the will of God our Father. Is this God's plan? Is this God's will? Is the gospel God's plan? Yes. What's the whole purpose of it? To whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. So here's what I would say the gospel is in a nutshell. It's God's plan to display God's glory in the sending of Jesus Christ in the flesh to die on the cross for our sins, to be raised again, and it's all by grace alone through faith. Very simple, right? Okay? But look at what Paul says in verse 6. I'm astonished. I'm shocked. I'm flabbergasted that you're so quickly deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to what? A different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to what? 
distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be sent to hell forever. That's the translation of the word accursed. It's anathema. Let him. What? Well, however you get there. Uh, yeah. As we have. It means go to hell. As we have said before, so now I say again. If anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Let him be anathema. Let him be eternally condemned. So here's, here's my, my thought process. We all know what the gospel is, don't we, pretty much? Hopefully around here. It's the good news of God's glory in the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ for sinners under his wrath who repent and believe in him and receive forgiveness and eternal life. Okay, what are some false gospels? I've thought up some, and these aren't all exhaustive, but let's just see if you think these are gospels that you see in our world today. Here's the first false gospel. This is the therapeutic gospel. I call this the Joel Osteen gospel. God wants you to be happy. God wants you to have no problems. He's got, you've got this void in your life, and God wants you to be all that you can be. He really wants you to feel better about yourself. You, People already feel guilty, so don't talk about guilt or sin. Let's just tell people how God's on their side and He can give them their best life. Now, is part of that true? Part of that's true, right? Does God have a plan for our lives? Does God want us to be fulfilled? Can God meet our needs? Yes. But does God promise that we're not going to have any problems? Does God always want us to be happy? Does God never want us to talk about sin or repentance? So the major theme of the therapeutic gospel is God wants me to be happy. Okay, do you guys think that's prevalent in our world today? Okay, here's the next false gospel. The no wrath or judgment gospel. People aren't sinners. They're not under God's wrath. Instead, people are already children of God. They just need to realize that they're children of God. God would never send anybody to hell because God is loving and God just looks at the heart and we really shouldn't try to impose our beliefs on others because after all, we really don't know who's going to heaven and who's going to hell and who are we to say that they're going to hell and who's to say that Jesus is the only way. We really don't want to, to, to muddy the waters and, and make, th- make people feel uncomfortable. So I think God's just going to be a happy, good, loving God and everybody's going to go to heaven. So here's the major theme of this gospel. God's only attribute is love and God looks at the heart. Is God love? Is that his only attribute? What happens if God looks at your heart? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Is that a good thing or a bad thing? If God looks at our heart, we're all toast because the heart is deceitful above all things. Do you see the no wrath and judgment gospel in our world today? That, you know, how could you Christians be so narrow-minded to say Jesus is the only way and there's such a thing as hell? And, you know, we're already all children of God. We just need to realize we're all children of God and live in the grace that he offers and just just learn to understand that. Okay, here's what I call northeastern Colorado or the moralistic gospel. Yes, I'm sinful. Yes, I need God's grace. But ultimately, it's about my willpower to be a good person so that God will love me. If I attend church, do good things, become part of noble causes, this will earn God's favor. He will accept me based upon what I do for him. The major theme is God accepts me based upon how good I am. Is that prevalent in our culture today? If I just go to church, if I just do good, if I just you know, try to be a good person, God will accept me based upon that. How much is enough? Okay? 
Here's another one. The political activist gospel. The only way society is going to change is through political activism. If we just... If we just had the right Supreme Court, if we just had the right elected officials, if we just had the right leaders in place, then all the social ills would be fixed. The problem with that is depends on who's in power. That can either go liberal or conservative, depending on who's in power. Now, should we be involved in politics? Yes. Should we be involved in social concerns? Yes. Should we give our voice to what's going on in our world? Yes. But... The major, thing is we, the major theme of this is we can change the sinful world through political activism. Partly true, right? Laws do help, but can you legislate heart transformation? You can't. It's got to be something that only God can do. And if you tie yourself to a, to a particular political party, what happens when that political party changes their views? Chris Christie, you'll hear this on Sunday. Chris Christie, who's a big poster child for conservative Republican, um, and I'm not saying whether I agree, you know, whether I'd vote for him or not, but he passed a law in New Jersey saying that if you're a Christian counselor or any type of registered therapist in New Jersey, if a minor comes to you and has gender identity issues or wants to be a boy and they're a girl and wants to be a girl and wants to be a boy or wants to wear a dress or wants to um, play with dolls or wants to wear makeup or wants to get a mastectomy or wants to change their gender, you by law cannot deter them from doing that. So no, so you, you, can't, you can't do anything. You legally cannot say, no, you can't do that. Let me help you to, to, to discover your manhood and to, to grow you into what a godly person can be. And so he's a Republican guy that people look at as a big conservative. If you tie your theology to a political party, what happens when they change it? And it can change like that, depending on who's in power. Okay, here's the next type of false gospel. I call this the individualistic churchless gospel. My relationship with Jesus is just a private affair. I don't need the church. It's me and my televangelist, or it's me and my internet preacher, or it's me in the woods, it's me in the lake, it's me in the mountains. I really don't need to be accountable to the body. I can just live out here by myself without anybody in the body of Christ with me. It's just me and Jesus. Um, the major theme here is organized religion is unnecessary. I'll go it alone. It's just me and Jesus. And then the one that I see that's probably not as common nowadays Maybe it still is. It's the judgmental and legalistic gospel. This is the whole idea that there, people are extremely intolerant of small differences of secondary matters like dress, music, Bible translations. They tend to be authoritative over how you act. If you don't dress less like us, act like us, read the same Bible as us, um, listen to the same music as us, you're not right, and therefore we're going to be a little bit judgmental and intolerant. It's like some circles of fundamentalism and some cults. So here's the major theme. We're the only ones who are right, so you better conform to us if you want to be in God's good graces. So let me ask you a question as we kind of close down our time because I don't want to start the next session because it's a huge, huge issue. Do you see these false gospels today in our world? They've been around a long time. Okay. What does Paul say to people who preach a gospel different than the gospel that we received? So, if an angel from heaven were to come in here all glowing and bright and shiny and steps up here and says, Pastor Sean, I'm an angel from heaven. Would you please step over and let me take over tonight? Well, yeah, you're an angel. I might as well let you hear. You're, you're directly from heaven. If this angel gets up here and starts preaching something different than the gospel, what should we all do? Give him a ticket. Give him a ticket. <laughs> Give him the boot. 
Paul says, even if I come and share with you. So how important is the gospel? So what is the gospel? It's God's glory and God's plan to send Jesus in the flesh as God the Son to die on the cross for our sins because we're under God's wrath and need salvation. And in His death, burial, and resurrection, He provides forgiveness of sins and eternal life by grace if we repent and believe in Him. And Jesus is the only way. Simple message, right? But is it under attack today? And how easy is it? What is He saying to the Galatians here? I'm... I'm so disturbed that you're so quickly, what, deserting. Have they fully done it yet? They're in the process of it, so there's hope for them. They're not fully apostate yet. You're deserting, what? Him who called you. So here's the danger. If you get the gospel wrong, it affects your relationship with Jesus. Well, let me make a distinction here because I think this, this is an important thing to say. There's a difference between a baby Christian or an immature Christian or a new Christian that doesn't know all the ins and outs of the gospel and they're learning versus a teacher or a preacher who knows better that's teaching false doctrine. There's a huge difference. And so I think there's room for growth. of Like a 10-year-old kid that learns the gospel, are they going to know all the ins and outs? No, but they're going to grow. A 45-year-old teacher or preacher that's espousing that, that knows and has been to Bible college, and there's a huge difference right there between, between that. So, Any other questions as we think about this topic? Let me tell you where we're going next week. We're going to move into this whole idea. We're going to go, go back to where we left off last week. This was kind of an interlude. We're going to talk about the covenants. There are seven major covenants in the Bible that tie everything from Genesis all the way to Jesus. There's the covenant of creation. There's the covenant of redemption. There's the Noahic or the Noah covenant. There's the Abrahamic covenant. There's the Mosaic covenant. There's the Davidic covenant. And there's the new covenant. And all of this starts in Genesis and ends up in Revelation. And we're going to see how these covenants play in the Bible have you guys ever done a study of the covenants and how they fit together? Never done anything like that. That's what we're going to talk about and how these covenants point to Jesus, how they all work together and how God has chosen covenants. And what was the theme we talked about last week? Kingdom. What was kingdom? Kingdom of God. God's, you're here this again Sunday, so there's going to be a lot of repeat. The kingdom of God is God's people living in God's place under God's rule and God's blessing. And in every single one of those covenants, you're going to see that, and it's tied to kingdom. So we'll think about kingdom of God through covenants. God has chosen to display his kingdom through the covenants from Genesis to Revelation, and they all point in the true King Jesus. So that's kind of where we're going next week. Okay? Any 